show playing a little bit of catch up today um i will discuss the alexandria ocasio cortez vote on the iron dome and uh how she cried about it and released a rambling statement a lot to say about that um we have bombshell stuff about how the u.s intelligence agencies were very close to pulling the trigger quite literally and assassinating julian assange we'll talk about that we have hillary clinton getting heckled, called a war criminal at Queen's University in Belfast. So that's fascinating. I'll give you the the planks that we just discovered from Andrew Yang's new third party that he created. Um, Donald Trump is out there coping hard over the Arizona audit loss. A lot to say about that as well. Meghan McCain made a total ass of herself on the Sunday shows. Tulsi Gabbard continues her full march to... um, a lucrative right-wing media career. She's going on a Fox News tour of wrongness that we will dissect. And um, one of the more interesting stories, in my opinion, later on today is actually Kyrie Irving is going full anti-vax, and in the process he's taking on the policies of the NBA, who have been pretty strict in regards to COVID. Um, really interesting stuff there. My take may surprise some of you. May surprise some of you. So anyway, Let's go ahead and get started, and um, let's dive into it. We'll start with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the other day, voted present on funding Israel's Iron Dome to the tune of an an extra $1 billion. Um, Now, I believe there were only nine lawmakers who voted against it, 
I do have the list for you, and I'll give you the list after I give you um, her statement here. Now, this went viral because she switched her vote from no to present at the last minute after a very animated conversation with Nancy Pelosi, and then as she switched her vote, she was crying. And so everybody watched this and was like, what's going on? So she decided, oh, I have an idea. I'll make this better by releasing a very long, rambling statement. Now, I'm not going to read you the whole thing because it's about the length of the dictionary. Um, But what I will do is read the first portion, which actually gives some important context on what was actually going on with the funding in this vote. Uh, And then I'll read you the last portion, which is sort of her grand reason for doing what she did and then I'll tell you my breakdown of it. So here's the beginning of the statement. Yesterday, the House called to the floor a rushed $1 billion supplemental military funding bill for Israel's Iron Dome defense system. I wanted to be clear with our community that I am opposed to this bill, funny way of showing opposition by voting present, but ultimately cast a present vote. My job as your representative is to first and foremost serve with transparency and remain accountable to you, the people of New York's 14th Congressional District. First, let me begin with why I believe this bill should have been opposed. Contrary to popular narrative, this bill was not for all U.S. funding of the Iron Dome, and opposing it would not defund U.S. financing of the system in any way, shape, or form. Since 2011, the U.S. has provided $1.7 billion for the Iron Dome and is already financially committed to continuing these funds through 2028. This bill adds an additional $1 billion in funding in one year to the system alone. For context, that is an amount in one year that approaches all the funding to this system we have provided over the last decade. And this is in addition to $3 billion authorized earlier this year in other forms of military funding to the Israeli government. I believe strongly that Congress should take greater scrutiny with all military funding across the world. I also believe that for far too long, the U.S. has handled unconditional aid to the Israeli government, has handed unconditional aid to the Israeli government while doing nothing to address or raise the persistent human rights abuses against the Palestinian people, and that this imbalance of power must be centered in any honest conversation about Israel and Palestine, in addition to the many other governments we militarily fund with a pattern of human rights abuses, such as the Saudi and Colombia-related amendments I introduced last week as well. So she also introduced this overall um, amendment, which would cut military spending by 10% across the board and then redirect that funding. Um, Cutting the military budget by 10% would be a positive thing, but in all seriousness, it is nowhere near enough. It's not even close to enough. Um, When you look at the overall spending, the U.S. versus the world, we spend more than the next 11 or 12 top countries combined on the military, and most of those countries are our allies. So we spend way too much on the military, with, of course, our infrastructure crumbling. I would cut our military spending by at least 50%. Um, She proposed something to cut at 10%. Now, the reason I'm reading you this first part is because the stuff she says on, hey, we already fund Iron Dome, and we fund it a lot, and this doesn't affect that funding at all. This has had another $1 billion on top of the ridiculous amount we already funded. The reason I read you this part is to tell you guys all that stuff is true. That's all true. Now, however, and this is obvious, but I'll point it out, that should lead you to definitely vote no and not vote 
present or vote yes. Now, um, let me continue because we're going to get to the, the crux of why she did what she did or her rambling, barely coherent explanation for why she did what she did. Okay. In short, the rush of this vote into a matter of hours was threatening to tear our community apart and permanently close the doors that we desperately need open in order to progress. Yes, I wept. I wept at the complete lack of care for the human beings that are impacted by these decisions. I wept at an institution choosing a path of maximum volatility and minimum consideration for its own political convenience. And I wept at the complete lack of regard I often feel our party has to its most vulnerable and endangered members and communities. Because the death threats and dangerous vitriol we'd inevitably receive by rushing such a sensitive charge and under-considered vote weren't worth delaying it for even a few hours to help us do the work necessary to open a a conversation of understanding. It certainly wasn't the first time people's well-being was tossed aside for political convenience, and sadly, I do not believe it will be the last. To those I have disappointed, I am deeply sorry. To those who believe this reasoning is insufficient or cowardice, I understand. To those who ask me to quell the volatility of this moment in our community, which constituted the majority of constituent feedback for our office, I hope we can take this moment and opportunity to more deeply engage in and grow a true substantive movement of community support for human rights around the world, which includes cherishing and respecting the human rights of Palestinian people. All right, first of all, and this is a side point, uh, and I don't want to be a dick, but I'm going to be a dick. Uh, I extra despise and hate people who cannot just say what they're trying to say. I don't want to hear your sophistry. I don't want you to give me a soliloquy. I don't want you to take 10 paragraphs to say something that you could say in three sentences. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is the absolute worst on this front. She loves to ramble while thinking she's saying profound stuff, and in reality, this isn't profound at all. It's close to profound. So the other thing I hate about this is the victim game. Alexandria, you're a congresswoman. You're one of the most powerful people on planet Earth. Stop playing the victim. You are not a victim. You know who the victims are? Palestinians living in Gaza. They're the victims. They don't have their basic needs met, not even close, and they get an aerial bombardment at least every year or two from Israel when they're not completely starving the region by not allowing aid in. Okay, so I don't want to – I hate the victim uh, narrative and the victim language, and nobody feels bad for you. You're a congresswoman. Act like a congresswoman. Step up and do the right thing. And I don't care who comes after me for going after her. She has all the power in this situation. I'm an asshole YouTube post, and I'm pointing out her vote was complete and utter nonsense. Now, to the extent we got any real reason out of what she said here, what is it? Very simply, what she's saying is, hey, I had uh, people who are staunch defenders of the Israeli government call my office, and they were really angry. So I switched my vote from no to present. Now, do I believe that that's the reason? Not really. Maybe it's part of the reason. I wouldn't be surprised if it's part of the reason. But everybody saw what happened. There was an animated conversation with Nancy Pelosi before she switched her vote. So Nancy Pelosi, effectively, to one extent or another, and I'm sure there are other details that we don't know of yet, but what we can surmise from this is Nancy Pelosi told her, you're going to change your vote. And what'd she do? Changed her vote and cried about it. I'm not a genius, but that to me looks like the definition of cucked. Now, and by the way, let's say, for argument's sake, let's say, let's pretend that didn't happen the Nancy Pelosi thing where she told her to change her vote, and she did. Is this reasoning sufficient for you to change your vote? 
I got a bunch of angry phone calls that told me to vote for the Iron Dome funding. Of course not. If you got a bunch of angry phone calls that said, give Saudi Arabia more weapons of war as they're carrying out a genocide in Yemen, would you say, well, what am I supposed to do? I got angry constituents who are mad that I'm not funding the genocide, so I guess I got to fund the genocide, or I guess I have to take the compromise, middle of the road, middle ground position on genocide and just opt out and say I'm present. Nobody would accept that reasoning. And the same thing applies here for Iron Dome. By the way, I would be willing to vote for Iron Dome funding for Israel only if we also vote for Iron Dome for Palestinians in Gaza and perhaps the West Bank and elsewhere. That's my compromise to you. Do you want a missile defense system? Sure, Gaza gets it too. Now, ultimately, we shouldn't be funding it at all either way. Why? Why are we giving Israel billions of dollars? Why are we giving them a missile defense system? Why are we giving them weapons? Why are we giving it to Saudi Arabia? Why are we giving it to all these different countries? We don't even have universal health care in this country. Israel has universal health care. We're giving them weapon, uh, money for a missile defense system when we have millions of people in this country without health care. We have 45,000 people dying every year because they don't have basic health care. What are we talking about? Our infrastructure is crumbling. Flint doesn't have clean water, and we're sending money for a missile defense system to Israel? They can't fund it themselves? Of course they can fund it themselves. So the whole thing is bullshit. Even if this was the real reason, oh, I had a bunch of angry constituents, I don't care. If you poll the American people overall, what what are the results going to be? It's going to be like definitely over 60% are going to say, why are we funding that? Why are we funding that? And, of course, I'm saying if it's, if it's phrased in a way that's reasonable. Hey, should we give a billion dollars more in aid to Israel? People are going to say, why would we do that? I don't, I don't, why would we do that? We already give them so much money in aid and so much money for defense, really offense. Why would we do, do it again? Now, by the way, um, I don't want to be too hard on Ocasio-Cortez specifically here because there are people who voted worse than she did. President is terrible, but what's, Way worse than present is voting yes on funding it. So um, let me tell you who voted no so we can do the math and find out who voted yes. The only people who voted no, Cori Bush, Andre Carson, Jesus Garcia, Raul Grijalva, Marie Newman, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Rashida Tlaib. So that means, let's see, Mark Pocan voted yes on funding this. Pramila Jayapal voted yes on funding this. Ro Khanna, Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones, they all voted yes on funding this. Again, we already funded Iron Dome to the hilt. We already give Israel a tremendous amount of money in military aid. We don't even have health care in this country. We don't have free college in this country. We have student debt. We have medical debt. We have a crumbling infrastructure. Why on earth should we give them more money on top of what we already give them for a missile defense system that the Palestinians don't have and they don't have in Gaza? Why would we do that? It makes no sense. But listen, fact of the matter is, and it's terrible to say, but it's probably true. If you look at the districts of the people who voted yes for funding this, they probably have a lot of Israel defenders in their district. And so they're doing what they think their constituents want them to do. But beyond that, they're also probably doing what APAC wants them to do. Because you gotta, now, you've got to go on a case-by-case basis, but look at the people who voted yes on funding this. And look at how much money they take from APAC. And it's probably going to tell a very, very clear story. 
Now, Ilhan Omar got a bunch of shit for pointing that out, but she's right, and it's true, and it's not anti-Semitic to point that out. It's just saying there is no special exception for Israeli lobbying that makes it different and better than pro-Saudi lobbying or pro-UAE lobbying or lobbying from the military-industrial complex or lobbying from Wall Street. Money impacts votes. Money impacts politicians. Lobbies impact politicians. Don't tell me it's bigotry to point it out in one realm, but it's not in another realm. No, it is accurate. It is correct. It is factual. Now, Ilhan Omar got smeared for saying that, but she was correct, and all of you know she's correct. So, there you have it. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, completely cucking to Nancy Pelosi, uh, doing a terrible vote. By the way, another hilarious thing that was pointed out is she said that voting present is like inherently cowardly. Like, just pick a side when it came to the impeachment vote when Tulsi voted present. So she made a, a case that was like, president is always bullshit, and then she voted present here. So, and, and by the way, I think this issue is actually much easier than the impeachment issue. Because as you guys know, and I told you this before, there's, there were a bunch of legitimate reasons to impeach Trump, but the one that they picked was bullshit. And so it's like, okay, well, what do you do here? Do you vote? Do you do like a let's get Al Capone on tax evasion type thing where it doesn't matter what the reasoning is since he should be impeached broadly, just impeach him? Or do you do let's look at the specifics of this exact case because on this exact case, it's bullshit. So what do we do? So that was actually much more difficult. This is not difficult at all. You obviously vote no on this, but that's not what happened. So I want to give massive credit to Corey Bush, Andre Carson, Jesus Garcia, Raul Grijalva, Marie Newman, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib. Oh, and by the way, one Republican joined Thomas Massey. Not anything to do with Israel specifically. The, he just said he's against foreign aid as a matter of principles. That's why he did this. Um, and he's, he's sort of like the new Ron Paul in a way. He's a very uh, truly ideological libertarian. And so that's why he did this. He's just against foreign aid. Uh, but either way, he voted the right way. Uh, and everybody else, shame on you. Extra shame on the people who voted yes on funding this. And um, pathetic that AOC voted president and then cried about it and played the victim. You're not the victim. And by the way, people are speculating, well, maybe there was a deal or something between um, AOC and Nancy Pelosi. Let's do a thought experiment. If this vote was to fund Saudi Arabia more, would anybody care about a potential deal made with uh, Nancy Pelosi? Like maybe AOC is getting something in return and she's being like a master deal maker. I I think... Everybody would rightly point out, if it was Saudi Arabia, like, well, hold on. There is no deal-making that would make supporting or idly sitting by while a genocide is going on, and we're helping fund it. There's no deal that would make that moral stand okay. And that's exactly how I feel about this thing with AOC. There is no potential deal where she gets something out of it on some other policy front that makes it okay to sit idly by as we give away even more to Israel and fund them more, especially when this country is falling apart, we don't have our basic needs met here. And we also give them a tremendous amount of money, not just for defensive military stuff, but offensive military stuff. There is no deal that would make that okay. So I wholly reject that line of reasoning completely. Um, This is absolutely pathetic. And look, it's clear In, in many ways, she's a massive letdown. And a lot of these people are massive letdowns and they're not, doing what they were sent there to do. Thankfully, on one front right now, the reconciliation package, they're still holding strong, and I wish them nothing but luck. 
I want to be able to come out here and give them credit. I want to be able to say, hey, good job on that front. And I have to this point on the reconciliation package. But listen, my job is very simple. I view it as calling balls and strikes. And so if they fold on it in a way that I think is totally unacceptable, if they accept a deal that I think is bullshit, I'm going to have to call it out. If they end up working on a deal I think is genuine and good, I'll say, great, good job. But as of right now, credit on the reconciliation stuff, no credit at all on this except to the people who voted the proper way. Um, AOC found a way to not only vote the wrong way, but then be extra insufferable, insufferable about it with the long, rambling thing that made me roll my eyes and made a lot of people roll their eyes. Um, I will say this. She's right about one thing when she says, um, for those who insist on calling me cowardly, I understand. Yeah, that's right, and that's quite an admission. Am I a coward? Yeah, I guess maybe. I can understand why you take that position. That says a lot. Maybe, just maybe, don't be a coward. Give that a shot. All right, next. All right, let's talk about Julian Assange. Julian Assange. Here we go. Ready? We have a new bombshell report from some reporters over at Yahoo News. This is really crazy. So we learned Pompeo and CIA officials reportedly had discussions about kidnapping or assassinating Julian Assange. Wow. So let me give you some of this here. Some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration even discussed killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options for how to assassinate him, the report said. Discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. There seemed to be no Boundaries, excuse me. The report says Pompeo sought vengeance against Assange for WikiLeaks' publication of Vault 7, a trove of documents with insights into the CIA's hacking capabilities. Multiple sources told Yahoo that Vault 7's release hurt the agency to its core, and Pompeo, quote, apparently fearful of the president's wrath, initially re- was initially reluctant to even brief the president on Vault 7. Don't tell him he doesn't need to know, Pompeo reportedly said before he was told that the information was too critical for Trump not to be informed. The development was described as a source of embarrassment for Pompeo and other top CIA officials, and Yahoo reports that he and the CIA began to take a more aggressive stance against WikiLeaks. Pompeo publicly referred to the organization as a non-state hostile intelligence service as he and the CIA deliberated a counter move, and that, and that designation played into their attempts to establish the legal grounds for offensive counterintelligence actions against WikiLeaks. Wow. Um... So that's absolutely astounding. That's absolutely astounding. Now, they go on to say they were picking up the ball and running with it from the previous administration. So in other words, happening in the intelligence agencies in the previous administration were conversations as well about how do we kidnap him, how do we assassinate him. And it wasn't like when it was brought up under Pompeo in the Trump administration Everybody was shocked by it. It was just, yeah, this is, we're just picking up the ball and running with it because they were talking about that previously. Um, there were also conversations about designating 
uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, The Guardian, and others as, I think they called them information brokers. So in other words, give them a legal categorization that is different from journalists or reporters so that you can say they're aiding and abetting hostile foreign powers, and then you can use force of law to go after them as well. So what we're seeing here is a colossal admission that CIA, the NSA, probably the FBI, our intelligence apparatus, they're still doing the same stuff that they did during the Cold War, where it was, hey, let's go completely rogue and assassinate foreign heads of state that we don't like because they don't tow the U.S. corporate line and they don't let us exploit them and jack their natural resources and they don't want to work with us, they don't want to deal with us. So let's overthrow a democratically elected government and pretend like we're the supporters of democracy and the believers of human rights and, and justice and freedom and liberty. They were talking about assassinating, murdering, kidnapping Julian Assange, and they had the details they give on the plans they laid out were preposterous. They thought they were doing some James Bond 007 stuff where they're like, we'll shoot out the tires on the plane when Assange is trying to escape to go to Russia. And they, they had these wild fantasies in extreme detail where they talked about it. Now, the other thing to point out here is the, the giant gap between what was really going on behind the scenes and what the public perception was. Because you guys remember this, and I'm guilty of it too, just like many others. There, were, there was clearly a big rift between Trump and many people who were part of the intelligence community, namely because of Russiagate. So it looked like there, there was a faction within the intelligence community that was against Trump and were trying hard to Russiagate him to bring him down. So it looked like a lot of the people who Trump needed to hate in order to potentially pardon Assange or commute Assange and let him go, Trump actually did hate those people. There was a lot of speculation, hey, maybe on the way out, he'll put his middle fingers up and he'll just say, I'm pardoning Assange. Because again, the people who hate Assange, a faction of them also hated Trump. Well, it turns out nothing could be further from the truth. Trump, as per usual, was completely cucked by the deep state. And so just like how, oh, I'm gonna pull out of all of our wars to spite them, and then he didn't do that, same thing. Oh, I'm going to pardon Assange to spite them. No, he was behind the scenes engaged in the same conversations, talking about options, and that, which is why Trump went on the campaign trail from saying we love WikiLeaks because they were reporting negatively on Hillary Clinton. He went from saying we love WikiLeaks to I don't know anything about that. I don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe you should talk to the Department of Justice or talk to the CIA. And so now we know, both under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration, there were serious conversations about assassinating, murdering Julian Assange. The other takeaway I get from this piece, and this is the most disturbing part, I think, is that you have two, the, the spectrum of acceptable debate and thought on this issue within the U.S. federal government was, the, the left side of the conversation was, don't kill him, don't kidnap him, stop that right now, we're gonna use the law in order to bring him down. So in other words, just use traditional legal channels. Just say, you know, whatever, he's violating the Espionage Act and he's aiding and abetting foreign uh, powers that are enemy states. And, and so, by the way, who was a representative of this line of thought? Jeff Sessions. It was Jeff Sessions and it was others, back when Jeff Sessions was part of the Trump administration. He was the 
you can't call this the voice of reason because this is also insane and it would destroy the First Amendment and destroy the Constitution and destroy the Bill of Rights and our civil liberties. But his more left-wing position in the spectrum of acceptable thought in D.C. was, let's just go after him through legal channels. Let's just make it so that we incentivize in the future no more whistleblowers, no more reporting on the embarrassing facts about the intelligence agencies and what we do around the world. And so there were a few representatives of that ideology and that philosophy who were trying to say, don't kidnap him, don't murder him, that's insane, that's not feasible, that's not plausible, let's just use legal channels, we can win on the legal channel front. And then the right-wing spectrum, represented by Pompeo and others, was here are the specific plans that we've drafted to kidnap him, to murder him, and um, this is the path that we want to take. The thing that you need to take away from this story is very simple both under Democrats and Republicans, in the Obama administration when the intelligence agencies were running wild, and the Trump administration when they were running wild. There were no representatives of the First Amendment, of the Constitution, of a free press, of liberty and freedom. None of them were there. None of them. And so it was either throw the book at him legally or kidnap him and murder him. And that's devastating. Remember, guys, Obama was a, Obama was a constitutional law professor. And his intelligence agencies were casually talking about kidnapping and murdering Assange as well. And this, again, this is all because he made the U.S. deep state look bad because they are bad. He gave facts on the U.S. deep state. That's it. That's it. He released information about the CIA and the NSA and their, and their spying capabilities. They think that deserves the death penalty. And he showed that the U.S. military was killing civilians and laughing about it. They think that deserves the death penalty. No. Assange is a hero. Edward Snowden is a hero. Chelsea Manning is a hero. Everybody, Greenwald, Poitras, and everybody who was involved with getting these stories out there, giving facts to the American people, they're heroes. And their reward for doing the right thing and telling Americans what they need to know is being done with their money in their name is either being thrown in jail or... They attempted to throw them in jail or casually talk about kidnapping and murdering them. This government has zero claim to the world police status and the defenders of human rights and democracy and freedom and liberty and justice status. Because what this shows is massive, colossal, imperial arrogance and authoritarianism, and there's no way around it. Okay, next. Let's have some fun. This one is just fun. So I want to give credit to Smooth Media, the YouTube channel Smooth Media. This is where I found this clip. Um, Hillary Clinton, now I don't know if she was given some sort of commencement address or if she was given some sort of honorary degree or whatever, but she was at Queen's University in Belfast, and uh, she was wearing a traditional garb, walking in looking like a Harry Potter character, uh, with a child carrying the back of her robe, which makes it somehow extra creepy. Um, so she's uh, walking to Queen's University Belfast, and she was heckled and called a war criminal.
So somebody was saying, shame on you to the university. Um, you heard somebody screaming war criminal repeatedly at her. Uh, you couldn't really get a good look at it there, but Hillary's face was a bit shocked. Uh, as per usual, I enjoy this very much. And the reason I enjoy this is because people like Hillary Clinton, also Dick Cheney, George W. Bush, they have gotten away with it. They've gotten away with it. These are people who voted for and pushed the illegal and offensive Iraq war, which killed a minimum 200,000 innocent civilians, uh, led to torture, led to an illegal occupation, led to colossal military-industrial complex profits. Uh, They are cretinous, and they are criminals. And so there's no accountability for them within the system. Remember, Obama famously said, we look forward, we don't look backwards. And that's in regards to both Wall Street crimes with the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession, and in regards to war crimes. And those were perpetrated by George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, I do think that anybody who really voted for the Iraq war, including Hillary Clinton, uh, I think they're also war criminals. They do have blood on their hands. And by the way, there was also a middle path. This is interesting. I've told the story before, but there was actually a middle path on the Iraq war that people could have taken. And it was a vote that said, we're against the war, but if the UN approves the war legally and it's not against international law, well, then I'll be for it. Now, the UN did not approve the war, but we did it anyway. But if you took that middle path and said, we're going to leave it in the hands of the UN and we have to follow international law, we'll only vote for it if they uh, approve it. I'm only okay with it if they approve it. If you took that middle path, then ultimately you would have been against the war. I don't think anybody took that middle path. Maybe a few people, and I don't know who they are, but Hillary Clinton certainly didn't. She voted for it. So, yeah, you are a war criminal. And then, of course, as Secretary of State, you have Libya happened under her watch and a bunch of other things. So um, she's a war criminal. I would love it if Dick Cheney and George W. Bush and Hillary Clinton and the likes of them couldn't go anywhere without hearing this the rest of their lives. That's what I want. It's the least you can ask for and the least you can hope for, given that there's no official responsibility for anything they've ever done. You know, credit to Mike Preisner, who, of course, is a veteran who's deeply anti-war, an activist now against war, uh, Abby Martin's husband. He went after George W. Bush during his rehabilitation tour in L.A. in a, in a room full of elite yuppies. And uh, credit to him for that. We covered that recently as well. Credit to these hecklers. And um, I want that bubble to be burst for these people. You're not loved. You're despised. You are quintessential elites, U.S. elites, who have taken no responsibility for your actions. And you've caused so much pain and suffering around the world. And now, when you step outside of that bubble, I mean, there were... There, were, there was talk about, I don't know how true this is. Maybe this is just a rumor. I don't know. You guys tell me. But there was talk about how, uh, like, Dick Cheney uh, and others were afraid to leave the U.S. because they were afraid of being arrested in other countries because of their crimes against humanity and their war crimes. I don't know if that's true. I hope it is true. Um, but certainly Hillary Clinton here is getting the very least of what she deserves. And credit to all those hecklers. Keep it up. I want all these people heckled and called war criminals in public because they are that. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Here we go. Andrew Yang. 
So Andrew Yang started a new third party. Um, of course, he ran for president and it ran in the Democratic primary, didn't win, uh, ran for mayor of New York, didn't win, even though he was a big favorite for most of the race. So now he's uh, starting a third party. It's called the Forward Party. And we just got the, um, the six planks of the Forward Party. So this is the overall philosophy here and policy approach, which will inform the direction of the party. Let's take a look at it. So Dave Weigel says, if it's no longer embargoed, here are the six planks of the Forward Party. This is in uh, Andrew Yang's new book, and he lays it out. Number one, ranked choice voting and open primaries. Now I'll come back and discuss all these. Uh, number two, fact-based governance. Number three, human-centered capitalism. Number four, effective and modern government. Number five, UBI. And number six, grace and tolerance. Okay. So uh, let's go through these one by one. Ranked choice voting and open primaries. Am I for or against? I am for. I'm completely in favor of those things. Um, I oftentimes call a third-party approach to politics in the current U.S. system self-disenfranchisement because the elites and the establishment want nothing more than you to waste all your political energy on a project that's not going to get off the ground. Um, they would love it if anti-establishment energy is wasted on that front. So, but, but, what do I always tell you guys? As long as you don't put the cart before the horse, well, then you can be really effective doing a third-party approach. But the answer is you have to do ranked choice voting first. If you first get ranked choice voting all throughout the U.S., well, then all of a sudden, the third-party approach is no longer self-disenfranchisement. And now it matters, and it's helpful, and you give yourself a fighting chance, whether you run as an independent or a member of a different third party. Um, you actually could make a difference, and it's not like people cannot argue in that situation that there's a spoiler effect, that your vote is wasted on somebody who has no chance. Because if it's ranked choice voting, your vote will just go to, if, if your candidate and you're voting for third party doesn't even come close to winning, then your vote redirects and goes down the line to uh, your second choice, so on and so forth. So if we implement ranked choice voting everywhere, then third party, the third party approach is no longer self-disenfranchisement. And I think it becomes a lot more practical and a lot more reasonable to put all your energy on that front. So this is an example of credit to Andrew Yang here. He's not putting the cart before the horse. He's saying, no, we're going to do this in the right order. I'm not going to just self-disenfranchise with a third party that's going to go nowhere. We have to first get ranked choice voting and have open primaries. Okay, great. So I'm in favor of plank number one. Plank number two, fact-based governance. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it, it's so broad and vague in general. I mean, libertarians argue they do fact-based governance. Uh, socialists argue they do fact-based governance. You can look at a fact and have a totally different interpretation of that fact. So here's a, here's a good example. You can have a giant economic downturn, and people on the right will argue, well, one of the reasons for this downturn is the big money government stimulus package that we just passed. It is actively hurting the economy and increasing our debt and leading to inflation, and that's unacceptable. Then you have people on the left who can look at that same economic downturn and say, the problem with this economic downturn is we didn't do a stimulus that was nearly big enough. Our stimulus was too small. Uh, if it was bigger, we would have created more jobs, created more opportunity, uh, given the working class more capital so that they can live their lives, and it would have helped the economy more. 
So in other words, you can look at the same set of facts and come to wildly different conclusions based on those facts. So when you say facts-based governance, that's too broad, that's too general, because ideology necessarily has a role to play, no matter who you are. Nobody's free of ideology in politics. And if you are, you're a dumbass. Like you have to have some sort of perspective. You have to have some sort of filter and model through which you view the world. There is no such thing as like, no, I'm actually above it all and ideology is not a thing to me. There is no such thing as non-ideological. It's a farce. So when you say fact-based governance, that, that doesn't make much sense. That's too vague, that's too broad, that's too general. Um, and it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it's easy for people to look at this and say, I'm pro-facts. But everybody thinks they're pro-facts. What, maybe, maybe 10 or 20% of people are silly enough and open and honest enough to be like, no, I'm against facts. I don't believe in facts. I don't even know if that's true. But even if it is, 80% of people think, yeah, of course I'm basing everything off facts. So I, I don't know what that means, and that's kind of silly. Uh, the third thing, human-centered capitalism. I don't know about that, dog. Because, okay, so there's a number of ways to interpret this. One of the things I'll say is this. If you really believed in human-centered capitalism, you could argue human-centered capitalism is actually social democracy. Like, that's what the Swedish or Norwegian model is. That's what the Scandinavian model is in, in a variety of those countries. And I say that because there are still elements of capitalism in those countries, but it's just a better hybrid with socialism. There is more socialism in those countries, so certain things are taken off the table. Now, I'm very sympathetic to social democracy, as everybody knows, but that leads me to ask Andrew Yang, well, why wouldn't you just say social democracy is what we're advocating for? And... If his response is, well, I don't really believe in social democracy, then I say to you, well, what the hell is human-centered capitalism then? What does that mean? What does human-centered capitalism mean? Because there also is an argument. Now, let me put on my further lefty hat here for a second. There's also an argument that that's a contradiction in terms. It's not possible. And the reason it's not possible is because capitalism, by its very nature, is not geared towards the flourishing of human beings. I mean, the, the goal of capitalism is increased profit for the corporations that are partaking in it, for the businesses that are partaking in it. And as Noam Chomsky famously says, under this conception of the world, private vices yield public benefit. And that, that just doesn't happen. If you put the profit first and foremost, then the human beings definitionally come second, at, or even further down the list, third, fourth, whatever it might be. So not even sure human-centered capitalism, as he might define it, is possible. And namely because this, and I, you know, I've talked about this with him. He went, came up with Kyle and friends, and we gave him a bunch of difficult questions. And, you know, um, one of the things I pointed out is during his presidential campaign, he wanted to put sunset provisions on all government regulations. And so we have to revisit them every five years or ten years or whatever it was. Um, that's a terrible idea. And that would not be human-centered capitalism. That would be like right-wing libertarianism sort of flirting with an Ayn Rand type effect on that front, and that the results of that would be disastrous. So human-centered capitalism, I don't really know what that means. Maybe you can make an argument that it's social democracy, but I don't think he would say it's social democracy if you ask him more detail on it. So then that leaves us with just this, again, a vague notion of like, reform, but don't reform too much. I don't know, man. Maybe in some ways we need to reform a lot. And we need to sort of upend the way the system is done and do a page one rewrite and start from scratch on certain fronts. Because, and here's, 
one more point on this, which is human-centered capitalism, that to me is, is too concrete because it sort of shuts the door on more elements of democracy in the workplace. So more worker-owned co-ops, more egalitarianism in the workplace. Because we do have this contradiction in, in American life, which is we, we espouse the virtues of democracy, but the place where we spend most of our waking time in the workplace, it's a tyranny. It's a dictatorship. It's a, it's a rigid hierarchy where you have the owner at the top and then the boss underneath them and then the workers underneath them. And whatever they tell you to do, you have to do within reason. And it's like, well, that's not democracy. You can't say politically democracy is great, but in the business place, it's always terrible. And human-centered capitalism sort of shuts the door on more elements of workplace democracy. And I think we could use some more elements of workplace democracy. Um, I think that's a very nuanced conversation to get into and a complex conversation. I have a lot more to say about it, but, so we'll shut the door on that for now. But um, human-centered capitalism shuts the door on further workplace democracy, and I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. I think we should leave the door open in some ways to more democracy in the workplace. All right. Then he says, this one gets, this is, takes home the vague first prize. I mean, this is effective in modern government. That's the number four thing. Again, I don't know what that means. Effective in modern government. If I'm being kind, my interpretation of that would be you need to, like, keep up with the times and don't let, te let technology outpace the needs of the people. So you can't just have, because he was big on this in his presidential campaign, don't let the um, job automation take away the best paying jobs from U.S. workers. And you have to have a way to transition into this new economy where it's more technological and we can't just sit idly by and let the automation crush the American people. That's my kind interpretation of what he's saying there. And that is true, that we need to not let that happen. But to just broadly say effective in modern government, I, again, this is one of those ones where I think everybody would say, I believe in effective in modern government. You could get a hardcore right-winger who would say, of course, I think we should have effective in modern government. You know what I mean? So very vague. All right, the fifth one, universal basic income. Totally agree with him on this. Uh, the only asterisk I would put is it would need to be crystal clear that we're not trying to cut any of the current social safety net programs with the UBI, the UBI should be supplemental on top of our current social safety net programs. So, and to be fair, when I asked Andrew Yang in our podcast with him, he said very clearly, I don't want to cut the social safety net. I want UBI to be on top of it. Okay, fair enough. There was a debate and an argument and uh, about whether or not that was true beforehand and how he crafted it and created the policy. But he did say to me, he wants UBI on top of the social safety net program. So number five, like number one, I'm totally in favor of and then number six, he said, we want to, one of their planks is grace and tolerance. I assume that just means general um, equality. He wants it to be a big tent in the sense that you have in all different races and different genders and stuff like that. I have no problem with grace and tolerance. Grace and tolerance are wonderful things. But again, I do think it's a little overly broad and should be more specific. Now, I'm sure that Andrew Yang does give more specifics on all of these things in his book, but... Um, you guys know, and, and I've said this before in the previous segment, the reason why I'm not too hot on this project, I mean, there's a number of reasons, but he's a very unique individual with his own very unique ideology. And I don't think it is a movement-building ideology. I don't think that this is what sparks millions and millions more people 
to create a winning coalition to take over U.S. politics. Um, I think ultimately what will happen is he will, even though he's saying, I want to do ranked choice voting everywhere first. That's great. He's right about that. But I don't think they'll get there on that front. So ultimately he will be sort of taking 2% or 3% and just playing with his little 2% or 3% uh, on his own. And that's, that is functionally self-disenfranchisement, whether or not he realizes it. So, and again, it's not like this stuff hasn't been tried before, guys, in terms of a, like a new third-party movement. They tried it. Remember the Reform Party? Trump was involved with the Reform Party. This was back when I was a child. Um, there, there have been attempts at this before. Like, we'll have a real third-party movement with a lot of energy behind it, and it always peters out. And I think we're going to see a similar thing with this. The planks I like are number one and number five. Uh, all the other ones are very vague in general. And um, I just don't think it's enough to generate a movement and to make a, a real impact. And like I told you guys, there are aspects of Andrew Yang I really like. He wants to decriminalize all drugs. That was to the left of Bernie Sanders. Um, UBI I love. But there's other things that I think were not great at all, that I think were really terrible. Um, and that stuff is going to matter. And here, here's another example. $15 minimum wage. He's against it. He's against it because, like I said, in some ways he's more libertarian on economics than somebody like myself is. Um, I think that's a fair comment. And he's not for $15 minimum wage. Uh, he was horrendous on Israel-Palestine and a bunch of foreign policy questions. So is there enough of a personality and a leadership and an ideology there to spark a true movement that can last and that can change American politics with our terrible two-party system where you have Coke and Pepsi and he's trying to start RC Cola and take over? I don't think it's going to happen, Andrew. I really don't. And I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the enthusiasm that was around him originally, I do think a lot of it has sort of tapered off because even some of his biggest fans were really turned off by certain takes he had, including the Israel-Palestine one was the big one. That was the real turning point in the mayor race, and that was a big turning point for a lot of people who were big Andrew Yang fans. You just can't be that bad on foreign policy and cheer on the you know, destruction of Gaza and um, pretend like Israel's the victim, and then have, you know, outsiders love you. That's not an outsider perspective. That is the ultimate pro-establishment insider perspective. And so, even though in some ways I like Andrew Yang, I do think this is sort of doomed to fail, but needless to say, I'll be keeping my eye on it. Okay. All right, next. Let's do one more, and then I'll take a break. Here we go. So we got the results of the Arizona audit. Of course, this was huge in Newsmax circles and One American News Network circles and far-right circles. They're still hanging on to this notion that Donald Trump really won the election and we're going to prove it. Well, the 60-plus lawsuits where Trump lost when they tried to say we won this thing, that wasn't enough for you? That didn't, that didn't tip you off that, in fact, he did lose? Apparently it didn't. So they tried again with this Arizona audit. Um, the results of that came back. I'm going to hold off and show you the results of that after this clip. But here's Trump trying to talk about the results in the middle of a rally. Take note, man. I really do believe that the wind is coming out of his sails a little bit here. He looks visibly tired. Um, his shtick is getting old. The people are he's sort of losing the crowd here a little bit, too, and you'll see that when he talks. So let's see how he classified and categorized and portrayed the results and then what the reality is take a look 
of the Arizona audit, which which were so disgracefully reported by those people right back there, and the headlines claiming that Biden won, that Biden won are fake news and a very big lie. You know, they like to, you ever notice when they write about that, they would say, well, the election results are a big lie. Every reporter, it's like, it's like, it's just total misinformation. Well, they're totally unfounded. Everything's unfounded, big lie, not correct. Well, Trump has no reason to say this. I mean, we get piles and piles of information, affidavits by the thousands and thousands. It's a disgrace. We won on the Arizona forensic audit yesterday at a level that you wouldn't believe. I, um, even I'm astounded at the boldness of this lie. So take a look at the reality. So this is in The Guardian. Arizona Republican audit finds even bigger lead for Biden in 2020 election. Hand count of the 2.1 million ballots cast in Maricopa County found that Biden actually won 360 more votes over Trump than was reported. Here's my question to Donald Trump. What the hell is your end game, bro? What's your end game? What's your end game? It's possible that he's saying these things simply because he has a petty, childish, emotional need to feel like I couldn't lose, I can't lose, I'm too special for that. But it's also possible he's doing some sort of playing political checkers and trying to set himself up for another run, and so he's hanging on to the notion that he won. But what comes out of this? What good comes out of this? You can't just go out there and say we won the Arizona audit when the exact opposite is what really happened. But he does do that, and he just did that. And it's like, where are you going with this, bro? Because I'll tell you guys something. Now, of course, this is anecdotal, so take it with a massive grain of salt. But I know people in my own life. I I know people who were big Trump supporters. And really, one of the first times that Trump lost these people is even in the wake of the election, when he was trying to say, oh, it's fraudulent, oh, it's not right, oh, it's not real. And um, they started doing the lawsuits, and Trump lost, like, almost every single lawsuit on the election, trying to say, prove fraud, and we actually won, and Biden lost. Trump loses all the lawsuits, and a lot of mostly Republican-appointed judges, some Trump-appointed judges were like, you're wrong, you lost. And my uh, Trump supporter relatives were like, yeah, he lost. Like, I I, I don't know what he's doing. So now Biden's been in office for a hot minute, son, and you're still doing this shit? You're still holding on to it? Guys, it doesn't matter how many investigations you have, how many lawsuits you have, how many audits you have. The results are irrelevant. It doesn't matter. They'll hang on to it no matter what. But that number is dwindling more and more and more. So maybe there was a time where a certain percentage were ride or die Trump. He's always right. But that's being whittled down more and more and more. What are you doing, bro? What are you doing? And is this something that could impact him going into – the next election, if he wants to run. It's very possible. I mean, now it's, what was the number I read? 61% of Republican voters say either Trump shouldn't run or he should be primaried in 2024. So even though there are, now don't get it twisted, I don't want to be misleading here at all. There are certain polls that show the opposite, that Trump is the leading figure on the Republican side by a mile and a half. So he's still the big daddy. He's still the big dog in the party. He's still the one who's the default de facto leader. But having said that, 
when you have 61% of Republican voters who say either primary him, I don't want him to be the only option, or he shouldn't run at all, the emperor is starting to lose his clothes a little bit, isn't he? And that's my point in covering the story is like, with a big, bold, brazen lie like this, can he get away with this in the same way that he got away with it back when he was president, where he already had all the power and he already had the aura of invincibility, where the political conventional wisdom was actually Trump can't be beaten and he'll probably win in, in 2020, back when that was the case? It sort of seems like it's hitting different, doesn't it? Because even the, even the audience there is sort of like, mm. he's sort of losing the audience as he goes off on this part. And when you lose those people, what do you have left? So I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what his end game is. I don't know if he's just in emotional protection mode or if he's like trying to set himself up and he thinks this will help for 2024. But either way, the, the arrogance and the boldness of that lie, and he knows it's a lie. That says a lot about the kind of person he is. I mean, really, there's a million things he did that you could call psychopathic. But in terms of from a psychological perspective, when you look at this, this is almost the most psychopathic thing because the results are incredibly clear. And it's the exact opposite of what he says. And he goes out there and just proclaims like, no, that's fake news. It's like he's doing some sort of, you know, mass scale psychological research into how much can I make people believe me over their lying eyes? And you know what? I think he's getting more than almost anybody else. He's one of the most successful con men in history. But at the end of the day, with a lie this bold, what what percentage of the population are you going to keep with you? 20%? 25, and I'm being kind by giving those numbers? Is that, is that it? That ain't a winning coalition for an election, dog. But I'm, I'm still, and maybe I shouldn't be, maybe I'm naive, but I'm still astounded at the balls for this level of a lie. I mean, this is like next level shit. Oh, final point. I watched this great documentary on, um, on this pyramid scheme company called LuLaRoe. The name of the documentary, I think, is Lula Rich. You should really check it out. Um, and uh, I'm sure most of you know how a pyramid scheme works, or a multi-level marketing scam or something like that, multi-level marketing something. Um, they were able to just fleece, you know, a preposterous number of, in their case, lonely Midwestern housewives, terribly designed um, uh, leggings that have just way too busy, just too much going on. But anyway, uh, it really is interesting because it goes into the details of how the pyramid scheme works. And the kind of person Trump is, this shows you something. Did you know Trump actually was involved with pyramid schemes in the past? So he would be the pitch man for a number of these pyramid schemes. Um, That's the kind of person that we're dealing with. That's who he is. And so you see those same instincts coming out here, where maybe he's getting too bold and too confident, and now he's crossed the threshold where he's going to lose most people when you say something like that. Oh, I won the audit. No, you didn't. You lost, and we have the specific numbers of how much you lost, and you lost more ground because of the audit. But uh, whatever, I won. You're getting lazy, dog. You're getting lazy. I mean, it's like the Trump University scam. People don't talk about that enough. We had a president of the United States who was found guilty of being a fraud, like literally committing fraud. Called it Trump University. You're legally not allowed to call something a university unless it's accredited. And they did classic scam tactics of upselling once you're in there. And he had to pay out millions of dollars because it was a fraud. It it was a scam. 
And nobody talks about that enough. Well, you see those same instincts coming out here. This is just Trump scam stuff from Trump. So anyway, incredible, uh, incredible. And you know the media is even getting tired of it because very few in the media cover these comments. They used to be all, all over this like white on rice if Trump said something that completely contradicted a clear factual statement. They'd be like, oh, look at this. But even they're yawning and getting tired of it. Maybe Trump himself is yawning and getting tired of it, but I don't know, man. The next presidential election is far enough away where any speculation on it is just wasted time. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, a lot more stuff to talk about, including um, Meghan McCain makes a total ass of herself on Meet the Press. Stay right there, y'all. We'll be right back.
let's move on to Megan McCain. In some ways, I'm a little bitter, y'all. I'm a little bit bitter. When it comes to new media, you, you start with literally nothing and nobody. You just turn on a camera, uh, you start talking, you upload it to YouTube, and you go like this. I hope somebody watches this. I remember back when my, I, I have a buddy named Brian. He, um, he created like seven or eight YouTube accounts just to subscribe to my shitty little channel when I had like no subscribers to make me feel good. I, I still remember that. So it really is, and this isn't just about me. This is almost everybody on YouTube. It is real bottom-up stuff. You start with Dickie McGee's axe, and you got to grind your way up. you got to put in time. you got to put in effort. you got to be obsessed. And um, then there's the opposite of that. The opposite of that is political dynasty BS. Um, for example... Perhaps you have the last name Bush, and you just sort of trip over your dick and fall into a governorship, whether it's in Texas or California. Perhaps you're a Clinton, and you get paid gargantuan amounts of money because you're a Clinton. Or you're a Biden, and you have all these foreign governments throwing money at your face just to get access to your dad, because your dad's powerful. Or you're a McCain, and you seemingly have zero talent or political intelligence, yet you're granted, you're gifted this position of commentate to us, oh, holy one, because you're a McCain. Well, that's Megan McCain. So, um, you know, she was on The View. Everybody loved to hate her. Um, and now she's, I don't know, she's just off The View and taking a break, not in media. But inexplicably, she was, she was invited on Meet the Press to give us her take on what's happening with this reconciliation package and the negotiation. She's going to say something here that is provably, verifiably, demonstrably, completely incorrect. And of course, Meet the Press won't correct it. Uh, Megan McCain won't come out and correct it. Nobody's going to correct this. But she just goes out there and says something that's totally untrue. I don't want to accuse her of lying. I'll accuse her of ignorance and just not knowing, but proclaiming something that's nonsense. Maybe she is lying. I don't know. But I don't need to go to that accusation. I just need to demonstrate to you that what she's saying here is total BS. So she's asked her thoughts on the reconciliation package. Here's her answer. I know you have a pretty good personal relationship. But this, we don't, that's the frustration Democrats say. They don't know what Joe Manchin wants. They don't know what his bottom line is, and they don't know what her bottom line is. How would you describe it? Well, I mean, politically in Arizona, I think that's why people like her so much. Just anecdotally, conservatives in my life really like her because, you know, she's holding uh, the line for conservatives in a lot of ways. Um, I, the question I always have is, uh, you know, for people like Joe Manchin, if it's not him, it's going to be a Republican. So this distaste and this, you know, outward hostility towards moderates in the Democratic Party surprises me. Um, I also was shocked by seeing Senator Booker talking about sort of openly this distrust between progressives and moderates. How the Democratic Party ultimately threads the needle, I don't know. But I will say that President Biden ran on being a moderate, as you said. He ran and won with the help of independent, centrist, you know, Trump-weary uh, Republicans. And he is not governing as one. The Build Back Better agenda is the most progressive, modern agenda of all time, up to $5 trillion. And it's not polling well. So I think I'm just confused as why they're doubling down on something that is cratering the polls right now. 
it's not polling well, she says, about the Build Back Better agenda, the reconciliation bill, um, and he's not a moderate. Well, look at the reality. This is from um, Warren Gunnels. He cites Quinnipiac poll. 62% of Americans support the $3.5 trillion spending bill on social programs such as child care, education, family tax breaks, and expanding Medicare for seniors. In a Pew poll, 49% opposed Trump's 2017 tax cut bill, while just 36% supported it. So again, what she said is, the bill's not polling well, and he's not a moderate. Is polling well, and this bill is a moderate bill because it is right smack dab in the middle, in the center of mainstream American opinion. It is the definition of centrist and moderate. Your average American is like, yeah, this is great. I like this stuff. So she's factually wrong in saying, oh, the bill's, this bill's not polling well. And she's wrong in saying he's not governing as a moderate. He is governing as a moderate. I mean, I wish he was further left, but he is governing as a moderate. So, again, here we go. Like, we'll meet the press, correct this. Will Meghan McCain come out there and correct this? She just said something that's not true. Guys, just so you understand, this is what propaganda looks like. This is what manufacturing consent looks like. And we've seen it all around CNN now, by the way, as well. What they do is they go out there and say, are progressives going to take the Biden agenda? What? Wait, 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 wait. Joe Biden's position is, and Nancy Pelosi's position is, and I got a zillion problems with them. Not on this, because their position is, you take the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, and that passes alongside the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That's the deal. We negotiated it. This is a deal. The reconciliation bill and the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, at the same time, they pass. That's their position. So Biden's position is the same as the House progressives' position. But they say, will the House progressives sink the Biden agenda? They're the representatives right now of the Biden agenda. It's the so-called moderate slash centrist. Really, they're corporate Democrats. These are corporate right-wing Democrats. The real framing, the real conversation, the real discussion is, why are the right-wing Democrats, why are the corporate Democrats tanking the agenda? Because they are tanking the agenda. It is so on brand that apparently Meghan McCain and Kirsten Sinema are really close friends offline. Oh, I love that. It's too perfect. Completely vapid, vacuous, you know, miserable wine moms desperately searching for identities uh, are buddy-buddy are offline. They probably bond over the incredible hatred that they get from everybody. But you know what? That hatred is earned. So let me answer her question. She says, um, if it's not like Manchin, it's going to be a Republican. So I don't get the dislike of him, and I don't get the dislike of, the, of like, cinema and people like that. Well, I'll explain it to you. It's very simple. Manchin and cinema. They don't, these aren't, I have an ideological stance where I think this is too much money, or I think that these, uh, you know, these specific provisions aren't good. No, look at the reality. Joe Manchin is swimming in fossil fuel money. He has millions and millions of dollars because of fossil fuel companies. He's personally wealthy because of fossil fuels. And so when he tries to ax any climate change provisions from the bill, he's doing that because he's corrupt because he's bought. Cinema just took, I thought the number was 500000 from Big Pharma. Wrong. It turns out it's $750,000 from Big Pharma. So she didn't wake up one day and think, I think it is smart politics and policy 
to be for higher drug prices. No, that's not an ideological position. It's she's corrupt and she's bought by big pharma and by lobbyists, and so she's doing their bidding. So why don't people like Mansion and Cinema? We don't like Mansion and Cinema because we're against corruption and we're against the lobbyists and we're against big money setting the direction of this country. That's why we're against them. So is your argument, Meghan McCain? You have to be cool with corruption because if, if, if you don't take the corruption, a Republican's going to win. That doesn't mean I'm okay with corruption. I don't want the Republican to win and I don't want a Democrat to be corrupt. Duh. And the Republicans are, of course, corrupt too. But I'm not going to say... Our corruption is better than their corruption. If at the end of the day, they're blocking lower drug prices and blocking any sort of climate change, um, any sort of climate change reform. So again, let me pull this up. I've, I've read this to you guys about a million times, but I'm going to read it to you again because there's a really important point to make about this. Um, they refuse to say, Mansion and Cinema absolutely refuse to say what things they would cut from this bill. The only thing we know is cinema says, I, I don't want lower drug prices. Even 80% of Arizonans say they want lower drug prices. Her own constituents. She's like, no, I disagree with my own constituents. It's another Megan McCain lie. Oh, people in Arizona love her. Not according to the polls on that issue. No way. No way. Um, and Manchin, we know he wants to strip out a lot of the climate change stuff. Outside of that, they do not give a number that they'd be okay with for the reconciliation bill. So they're not like, you know what, I'll do $1.5 trillion. They don't say that. They don't, say any, they don't give any number. And the other thing they don't do is, of these policies that I'm about to lay out for you, of these programs, they don't say which ones they'd cut. Uh, child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, tuition-free community college, um, dental, hearing, and vision expansion under Medicare, housing, home care. Um, and then, of course, you have the raising taxes on the rich, Obamacare expansion, and a few more things. They don't say, okay, okay, we got to get rid of paid family leave and medical leave. They don't say that. Why? Because if they come out and say that, literally everybody in the country, Republican, Democrat, Independent, 80 plus percent of people will be like, are you insane? Those are good policies. So what do they do? They only lead on the one where they're totally bought and owned, uh, lowering drug prices, and in the case of Manchin, climate change stuff. And everything else they just say, I don't know, the bill, something, the deficit, too much money, uh, inflation, whatever. <laughs> and they have to uh, bob and weave and dodge and hide because they know their position is untenable because this is an area where they know they're corrupt. I tell you guys all the time, my default assumption is somebody's honest about their ideology until proven otherwise. They're upfront, you take them at face value because that's what good people do. You extend bare minimum charitability to people. But guess what? This is an instance where they've worn their welcome. Of course I don't give them charitability. They've proven that they're actually just following the money and being corrupt. So that's the reality. Now, take, now look at Megan McCain's commentary compared to what I just told you. It, it's utterly useless. She's a dynasty child who was born on third base and thought she had a triple. She thinks she has political insight She's got nothing. She's doing propaganda effectively for higher drug prices, no action on climate change, and the destruction of a transformational reconciliation bill. It's so pathetic. It's so pathetic. Um, why is she on TV? And why won't Meet the Press come out there and issue a correction? 
Why won't Meghan McCain tweet a correction? They won't do that because they're liars and they're propagandists. Or I'll be kind. I won't say liar, just ignorant. I'll leave it. I'm agnostic on whether she's ignorant or a liar. But one thing's for damn sure, they need to correct it, and they won't correct it. And yet again, a loudmouth idiot YouTuber is somehow running circles around them. That's pathetic. Okay. Next. Tulsi Gabbard went away from the national conversation a little bit. She was uh, serving in the military in Africa. And there's been a giant transition in the stuff she cares about, the stuff she chooses to focus on. And she is now right smack dab in the middle of going on a Fox News tour of wrongness. Now, I covered some tweets of hers previously that were really eyebrow-raising. This is effectively her doubling down on those tweets and her adding another layer of wrongness. Take a look. Joining me now, someone who's been following the border disaster from day one, former Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi, I'm just really disgusted with what the president said about those border agents on horseback. Everybody with a brain knows that there was no whipping of migrants going on. So what do you think is happening? Why is he saying that it did and threatening to punish the agents? Uh, Jesse, the the issue here, and, and I consider Joe Biden a friend, but he's absolutely wrong. And he needs to apologize to the American people for saying what he said. And, and here's why. You know, he's somebody who's been very outspoken as being against autocrats, autocracies, dictators. But what he essentially did was act as judge, jury, and executioner for these Customs and Border Patrol agents on horseback. How can they expect to have any kind of fair outcome to an investigation when the President of the United States has already declared their guilt and that they will be punished? And the bigger issue here that this points to, which is one that that we all need to be concerned about, is that if we are no longer a country of laws, if we are no longer a country where we know we will, presu- we will be presumed innocent uh, unless proven guilty, then we don't have a democracy. And that's the increasing feeling that a lot of us have is that we are losing our democracy and moving closer and closer to what essentially is an autocracy. Uh, you said the Biden-Harris open-door policy has been a disaster. It needs to end now. The main beneficiaries of open borders are the gangs, cartels, and human traffickers. The Trump policy of having people wait on the other side of the border worked and needs to be reinstated. Your, your thoughts about what's happening in Del Rio and how the administration is handling it? Uh, it, it is an utter disaster and failure and it's directly attributed to the Biden-Harris administration's open border policy. This is not only a humanitarian crisis, it is a a national security crisis, and it's something I've said uh, all along, which is that if we do not secure our borders, uh, then we can't have a secure nation. Uh, Well, as as you know, Brett, uh, in both East and West Africa, there is a surge of these jihadist terrorists, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and affiliated groups uh, are increasing in their strength. 
the withdrawal from Afghanistan is something that I agreed with, but unfortunately the way that this administration executed that withdrawal has been an utter and abject disaster, which is continuing to play out as we speak. Uh, for those who say, and we should continue to monitor Afghanistan to make sure that there are no Al-Qaeda and ISIS strongholds that are allowed to start to take root. Uh, if we're seeing that that's starting to happen, then we need to go and take them out. But we should not be under the illusion that this is a problem that's only limited to Afghanistan. Oh boy, where do I begin? Let's start with the Afghanistan war stuff, because this is really important and this got under my skin quite a bit. When Biden did the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as of right now, as of right this second, we have actually fully withdrawn from Afghanistan. Understand something. I was wrong. I didn't think Biden would fully withdraw from Afghanistan. I thought he would do the same thing Trump did, which is cuck himself to the military industrial complex and... Um, even best case scenario, maybe pretend like we withdrew while keeping a residual 500 or 1,000 troops uh, on the ground. Biden didn't do that. Biden fully withdrew from Afghanistan. I give him massive credit on that front. Do you have any idea the nerve it takes, the balls it takes to stand up to the military industrial complex, to stand up to the deep state, the intelligence agencies, the CIA, the Pentagon, who every step of the way are whispering in your ear, this is wrong, this is not okay. This is a disaster. You're making the United States less, less safe. We need to stay there. We have to stay there. Do you have any idea the amount of, hey, fuck off, that you have to have in you in order to stand up to every wing and faction of the establishment, specifically on the issue of Afghanistan? That's what Joe Biden did. You know what else? To successfully evacuate. 100,000 people from Afghanistan in what, a two-week time frame? Do you have any idea how difficult that is, the logistics of that? Do you have any idea how difficult it is to coordinate, as we did, with the Taliban, so that the Taliban actually provided safe passage for Americans to the airport to get them out of Afghanistan? Do you have any idea the high level of coordination that you need in order to make that happen? Do you have any idea? Now, of course, there was the airport bombing. That was from ISIS. The bombing not only killed our civilians, our, our soldiers, um, it also killed Taliban operatives because ISIS is, has positioned themselves against the Taliban here as well. So we were dealing with the Taliban, and it was ISIS who did that bombing. Now, the worst thing Biden did was the war crime in response to that, which is killing 10 civilians, including seven children. It was an aid worker. It was the revenge, revenge strike, the retribution strike. He wanted to make sure, I don't, I don't look soft on terrorists, let me do this. That's a war crime. Now, we covered a segment where Tulsi talked about that. She didn't spend any time saying, whoa, 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 that's a war crime. People need to go down. Tucker threw her a softball, criticized the people who killed the civilians. You know, say there needs to be accountability on that. What did she do? She didn't do that. She pivoted right to uh, Islamism bad, jihadism bad, who need to keep up the, the fight and use air power. This is what happens when you use air power. They don't have the high-level intelligence. We can't kill a gnat from 100 miles away with a laser-guided bomb. That doesn't happen. She didn't do that. So she's not criticizing the one thing that's really worthy of criticism. But she is criticizing. She says, the withdrawal is something I agree with. But, 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 I, I, I agree with the withdrawal. But, this is like my favorite, I agree with free speech. But, no but, no but. The withdrawal is something I agree with. But, the way it went down was an utter and abject disaster. Was it? 
Was getting 100,000 people out of there an abject disaster? Was leaving zero boots on the ground an abject disaster? That looks like one of the best things he ever did to me. Now, why am I so animated about this? Why am I so annoyed about this? Tulsi Gabbard positioned herself as I'm the anti-war candidate. That's who I am. I'm the one who's taking a principled stance against, uh, you know, the war hawks. Joe Biden did that on the issue of Afghanistan, and you're nowhere to be found defending him. What, you thought it was gonna, uh, everything was going to go perfectly smoothly, and there was going to be no ISIS attack, there was going to be no other issues. Of course, the, the military-industrial complex and the propaganda machine that is the establishment media, of course they were going to nitpick every nook and cranny of the withdrawal because they don't want to withdraw. They want to keep us there. They want to jack the natural resources, the trillions of dollars in mineral wealth, the opium. The military-industrial complex wants those profits. Of course they were going to blow everything out of proportion. Duh. They're overly critical of the withdrawal, which was the, the most organized and best part of the war itself. But no, she doesn't make any of these points. She doesn't point out where was the media outrage when we allied ourselves with warlords with child sex slaves. Where was that? Where was the outrage when the Afghan papers came out? And we learned about how the whole war was a farce. They, nobody knew what they were doing any step of the way. Where was the outrage there? I don't see any of it. Instead, the bulk of the commentary is, the way it went down was an utter and abject disaster. So that I'm the anti-war candidate is not actually making a defense of the anti-war president on the issue of Afghanistan. I'm very clear on the issue of Afghanistan because Biden is still horrendous on Syria. He's still horrendous on Iraq. He's still horrendous on a, a number of foreign policy fronts. Didn't even get back in the Iran deal when he could have and he should have. But on the issue of Afghanistan, Biden did the right thing. And nobody's defending him. Even the, the candidate who was like, I'm the anti-war candidate, the bulk of the commentary is bashing him on that front. What happened, Tulsi? What happened? What happened? You tell me. I'm asking you. What happened? What happened? Okay, I got more for you. So let's run through it. She says, why is Biden punishing those agents? The criticism I have of Biden is that he didn't punish the agents enough. You know what happened? They said, oh, we're no more uh, agents on horseback. No more agents on horseback, as if the horses were the main problem. The horses weren't the main problem. The problem is that they were using the horse reins as a whip, and they were threatening people, and they were aggressive. And those people, listen, you can criticize what's going on at the southern border. I have criticisms, of course, of what's going on at the southern border. But don't pretend like the Haitians carrying food back from Mexico were a direct and imminent threat to the Border Patrol agent on fucking horseback. Don't make that argument. And she's saying, why is Biden punishing those agents? She says, Biden needs to apologize to the American people. He says he's against dictators, but he's acting as judge, jury, and executioner for the Border Patrol agents. Excuse me, Tulsi. Joe Biden is the head of the executive branch of our government. This is an executive agency that he's responsible for. The buck stops with him. If he wants to fire somebody who's under his command and control, who's an employee of him and the executive branch, he has every right to do it. This has nothing to do with a judicial process. Innocent until proven guilty. Nobody's on trial here, Tulsi. They are the employee. He is the boss. He's saying you're not acting in the way that I think is acceptable and respectable. Now, he didn't fire them. I wish he did fire them. He should fire them. Unless I missed something, maybe fired them and I didn't see it. But that's what I would have done. You're acting far too aggressive. The Border Patrol agent very clearly said something to them like, this is why your country is shit, because you treat your women like this. Something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. I didn't hear every word of it, but that's the gist of it. That's acceptable to you? That's okay? That's professional? These, now, regardless of what you think of what's happening at the southern border with the Haitian refugees coming in, we know there was just a coup in that country. There was an earthquake. 
there were uh, multiple natural disasters. There's no opportunity. People, they're, they're desperate. Tulsi, if you were in that country with your family, you would want to flee too. But your concern is for the Border Patrol agent who's being very aggressive and threatening them as they come in just carrying food from Mexico because they want to eat to survive? What are you talking about? What are you doing? She says, we're losing our democracy. This is like an autocracy. Now, the hilarious part about this, she says, we're losing our democracy. This is like an autocracy because Biden is saying, hey, this person who's my employee needs to be disciplined and do the right thing. And we need some sort of disciplinary action because that's not acceptable what they did. She's saying, well, that like, somehow violates due process, even though this has nothing to do with the judicial process at all. This is the boss and the employee, and he's saying you're not acting the right way. Totally fair. She says, that's why we're losing our democracy, because Biden is acting like a dictator by doing that. In other words, he's acting like a dictator and an autocrat, not because he's totally getting rid of any semblance of due process for the migrants and the refugees. That's the real criticism. The real criticism is you're using Title 42 to deport people immediately without any due process. That's dictator-like. That's authoritarian. She doesn't have any criticism on that front. In fact, quite the opposite. She just flat out misstates. I mean, probably lying, but I'll just be kind and say she misstates um, what's going on at the border. Because she says, oh, Biden and Harris have an open border policy. And it's a national security crisis, what's going on here. We'll get back to the national security point in a second. But, oh, it's an open border policy. Open border policy? Title 42, the whole idea behind Title 42 is uh, the federal government says this is a pandemic, there's a health crisis, we're not going to have due process because we can't because there's a health, health crisis, we're just going to deport you immediately. How many people did Trump uh, deport using Title 42? 400,000 in his four years in office. How many people have Biden and Harris deported just to this point using Title 42? 690,000 people. That is the opposite the polar opposite of an open border. That is, not only is it not an open border, we're going to give you no due process, no day in court, no hearing. We're just going to deport you, no questions asked. She calls this an open border. That's probably a lie. I'll be kind and say she doesn't know. And so she sees people waiting under the bridge, and she says, well, we must have an open border because there are people under the bridge. Either way, it's inexcusable. Whether it's a lie or just a misstatement, either way, it's fucking wrong. Now, the reason I'm leaning towards calling it a lie now is because people told her when she did that tweet three or four days ago, everybody in the response was like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's deported 690,000 people immediately. No due process. That's the real criticism is give them due process. She's not, I'm sure she saw a lot of this stuff. She's not responding to it. She's not correcting the record. She's not saying, whoa, whoa, it's not an open border policy at all. My bad. You want to criticize Biden? Fine. I criticize Biden all the time. Do it accurately. Do it in a factual way. She's not doing it in a factual way at all. At all. Uh, And then the final thing is she says, oh, this is a national security crisis. A national security crisis? Listen, I told you guys a million times. I I fancy myself a moderate on the issue of uh, immigration. I think borders are totally fine to have. I think it's fine to enforce your laws. I think what we need is a humane, altruistic, reasonable, rational, logical process where we determine who gets to stay here and who doesn't get to stay here. I would send more resources to the border, more immigration judges, and I'd have a a fair process set up that's solid, okay? So I'm a moderate on the issue of abortion. So I'm not some, like, far lefty on this and I'm effectively arguing to open the borders up or whatever. But what she's saying here is some right-wing bullshit. It's a national security crisis. How's it a national security crisis? Why? Is al-Qaeda sneaking in the southern border with Haitians? Is that what's happening? Is there any evidence of that whatsoever? Of course not. 
There's no Al-Qaeda. There's no ISIS. There's no evidence any of these people are gang members who are coming here specifically to cause destruction or whatever. That's some right-wing trope bullshit. Oh, black people are coming to the southern border, so they must be violent. Or they're migrants and refugees, and their country was just destroyed by a coup and multiple natural disasters, and so we need to react to this responsibly and accordingly. Again, you could be rational and logical and have rules while also being altruistic and humanitarian and reasonable and embracing people's civil liberties and rights and due process. There's not a hint of that in her commentary at all. It's just going full right wing on this crap. So, man, it's really pathetic. She went away from the national spotlight for a little bit, comes back and just goes hard on, like, a right wing push. And anybody, everybody can see it. There were even people who were very hard defenders of Tulsi previously who now are just like, oh, well, I see what's happening now. That's right. You do. And everybody does. Um, so, pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. And um, expect more, I'm bracing myself for even more of like a Dave Rubin shift from Tulsi. Total ideological transformation in a short time span. And, you know, it leads you to question... Why? Why? Do I think you're having a genuine change of heart on a variety of different issues? For adults, that's very rare. If you tell me that there's two or three issues where you've genuinely evolved over time and you've changed your mind and it's, you thought about it a lot, you've been presented counter evidence and you're like, hey, I don't have a concrete slab where my brain is supposed to be, so I changed my mind on this. That's called being an adult. That's called evolving. But if you tell me down the line of most of the political issues, in the time span of like a year, I totally flipped. I say, eh, that looks opportunistic. That doesn't look like you had real tra- a real transformation. So it's very sad to see. All right, next. Here we go, Hunter Biden. So Hunter Biden um, was caught in another gigantic scandal here. Now, I want to be clear. The reason why this is a scandal has nothing to do with Hunter's dick, has nothing to do with his relationships, has nothing to do with his addiction. Uh, This is purely corruption-related. It's purely financial, and um, you'll see how bad it is. So Business Insider says, exclusive, new emails reveal Hunter Biden asked for $2 million plus success fees to help unfreeze Libyan assets. Wow. Wow. All right, let me give you some specifics here. Two previous... Previously unpublished emails sent by business contacts of Hunter Biden indicate that the president's son requested an annual retainer of $2 million to help recover billions in Libyan assets frozen by the Obama administration. The emails obtained by Insider uh, during reporting on an unrelated matter are not connected to the controversial emails from Hunter Biden's laptop, which his supporters have claimed were distributed as a part of a disinformation campaign. By the way, that's now been proven incorrect. That's not true that there was some sort of Russian disinformation campaign or hacking. And while it appears from the new emails that the Libya deal was never consummated, the documents offer a window into the mechanics of beltway influence peddling and the stock that was put in Biden's political connections, particularly his relationship with his father, who was vice president at the time. The first email dated January 28, 2015, was sent from Sam Jahari, a Democratic donor with businesses in the Persian Gulf who was helping spearhead the Libya project. It was addressed to Sheikh Mohammed al-Rabani, another Obama campaign donor, involved in the proposal. In the email, Jahari is frank about what Biden would bring to the table and what he says Biden wanted in return. All right, let me give you more. 
Per phone conversation, I met with his number two son. He wanted two per year retainer plus success fees. He wanted to hire his own people. It can be close circle of people for confidentiality. His dad is deciding to run or not. His positives are he is chairman of UN World Food Program, son of number two who has a Libya file, access to state treasury business partners, Secretary of State John Forbes, John Forbes Kerry, his son, and since he travels with dad, he is connected everywhere in Europe and Asia where Muammar Gaddafi and Libyan Investment Authority had money frozen. He said he has access to highest level in PRC, China. He can help there. His negatives are that he is alcoholic, drug addict, kicked out of U.S. Army for cocaine, chasing low-class hookers, constantly, constantly needs money, liquidity problems, and many more headaches. We should meet in G-Strad or London to decide next steps. So this is the way the sausage is really made. This is what actually goes on in Washington, D.C., This is laid out in such a clear way. You have these big money donors who have a financial reason to want to unfreeze Libyan um, assets. Now, of course, the reason why they were frozen is because of the political turmoil there and uh, eventually the revolution, and um, it was chaos, and you had splinter groups on the ground and extremists who were taking over, and so I guess the government froze Libyan assets. This guy has a financial interest in wanting to unfreeze them, Hunter talks to him and says, if you pay me $2 million and then more success fees, so in other words, if I can actually get them unfrozen, then you uh, pay me more. Hunter tells this guy that, and this guy's like, should we do it? He's got all these other issues, but, you know, maybe this is the best path forward. What should we do? And um, it's basically an attempt at an illegal deal, and it is, Beyond influence peddling, this is like straight up, this might actually be flat out bribery. This might actually be like quid pro quo, pay to play, caught dead to rights in the email. You give me this, I'll give you this. To the point where it might even be illegal because we have very lax campaign finance laws and things of that nature in this country and things that are obvious corruption, usually people don't even go down for corruption. This appears to even cross the few lines that we have. Hey, give me $2 million and I'll unfreeze the Libyan assets. How? My dad's the vice president. I have a great relationship with him. I'm going to work on that. So give me $2 million for sure, and then success fees on top of it, where I'll probably be able to do it, and then you pay me more when I can actually do it. This is the way it really works. Now, thankfully, like they said, the deal wasn't consummated. But just the fact that Hunter Biden was engaged in these conversations, that might break laws in and of itself. And, of course, this reminds me of the other conversation we were having recently, where Hunter Biden is selling you know, his art, his paintings for like 50K or 500K, making all this money for his art. And even Obama's ethics advisor was like, this is crazy because this is obviously going to be used to gain more influence as well. Some donor can give Hunter 500K and secret conversation with Hunter, be like, hey, what I need from the president is X, Y, and Z. And then Hunter goes and talks to his dad and maybe makes things happen, maybe doesn't. But just the fact that he's using his connection and his influence like this is at the very least incredibly problematic in reality, probably completely illegal. And needless to say, if this was a story, if the specifics were exactly the same, but it was Trump and Ivanka or Trump and Don Jr. 
the media will be having a field day with this, but the media is not even really talking about it much now, are they? And it's a shame it took this long to come out. This was happening under the Obama administration that we got this. Again, this is Business Insider, very legit outlet, not right-wing hacks or anything like that. Totally unacceptable. Now, by the way, I'm not making the Trump point to try to say they didn't do stuff like this. In fact, they did. For example, the, uh, uh, the Saudi government was giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to Trump through his hotel in D.C., and then Trump turned around and did a multi-billion dollar weapons deal with Saudi Arabia. So there was a little bit of I scratch your back, you scratch mine, and um, corrupt deals there as well. I'm not trying to say the Bidens are guilty and the Trumps are not, but my point is they're all doing it. Whether it was under Obama, now under Joe Biden, whether it was the Clinton Foundation with Hillary Clinton and, and her family and the stuff that they were doing when she was Secretary of State, the Trumps, I mean, it's, it's disgusting. And this is why I said I, I did, you know, that whole series of Kyle's unpopular takes. And one of my takes, which is like probably the most popular of my unpopular takes, would be I honestly believe that corruption should be punished more like it's murder or manslaughter or assault or rape, things of that nature, because it really ultimately ends up destroying the fabric of a nation because you don't have uh, public officials doing what's best for the public. They end up acting in a completely selfish way, completely greedy way, corrupt way, which ends up serving corporations and billionaires and, and their donors and doesn't serve the people at all. That's exactly what we're seeing here. This is astounding corruption, and this should be huge news, and it's barely being talked about anywhere. So again, final point. Let me just make a distinction real quick. Hunter's got a fucked up private life and personal life. I don't want to hear about who he's sleeping with, who he's not sleeping with. I don't want to hear about his addiction. Only in the context of talking about Joe Biden's hypocrisy on the drug war do I want to hear that. So that's the real scandal there is the hypocrisy that Biden wants endless rehabilitation for his son, but wants to throw black and brown kids in jail, poor white kids in jail. That's okay to talk about that. But outside of that, I don't want to hear about his personal problems or anything like that. And this was the problem with the right-wingers when they leaked this stuff um, originally, is they clouded everybody's judgment and accidentally deflected the whole conversation because they put corruption stuff with salacious pictures of him with his shirt off and shit. Don't do that. Just do the corruption stuff. And now we have another example here. Don't attack him personally. Attack the corruption because that's what really matters. And this is serious. This is serious as it gets. So there should really be an investigation into this. And honestly, I think Hunter should be in jail after seeing all the different corruption scandals. Yes, he was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from a Ukrainian energy company when he knows nothing about Ukrainian energy. And, you know, the idea was he was those people were buying access to Joe Biden at the time, who was the vice president. This, it, it's laid out in the email clear as day. Absolute scandal. This is the way Washington really works. This is the way the sausage is really made. And uh, nobody should get used to it or accept it. It's criminal. All right, next. Okay. This is actually one of the most interesting stories of the day to me, and you'll see why as I go along here and I explain. But um, there's an issue uh, in the NBA right now. So let me show you this headline here from Rolling Stone. The NBA's anti-vaxxers are trying to push around the league, and it's working. Conspiracy, conspiracy theories in the locker room, mask police in the arena, superstars trying to avoid the shot after bringing back the culture from COVID. 
uh, basketball confronts its own civil war. So um, there are a bunch of players who are making headlines over this. So Andrew Wiggins is making headlines because he's saying, I, I, for, because my religion, I don't want to get the vaccine. So he's saying, I have a religious exemption. Um, well, the state of California isn't having it. And they're like, no, not buying it. You have to get the vaccine in order to play in our state. So there's two states right now. I think it's California and New York who are basically saying, you have to get the vaccine in order to play in our arenas. Um, everybody who comes into our arenas in these big gatherings needs to have the vaccine. Um, now, Kyrie Irving, as well, doesn't want the vaccine, and he has gone further down the rabbit hole, and I don't know about Wiggins in particular. All that was reported on Wiggins is that it was a religious exemption he was looking for, and he wasn't granted it. Now, by the way, I should be clear. The NBA, I think, is granting it to him, but California and New York are saying you can't play here if you don't get it. Okay. Um, Kyrie Irving is a little further down that anti-vaxxer rabbit hole because he didn't just say religious exemption. He's been on social media liking posts about how there's a microchip in the, in the vaccine and it's to draw black people closer to Satan or things to that effect. So he's gone further down the anti-vaxxer rabbit hole and seemingly buying into some sort of insane conspiracy theories. Um, and then you have the players union is, it was reported that in conversations with the NBA, they said in a very straightforward way, um, it's a non-starter to do a, a 100% vaccine mandate, to have 100% of the league vaccinated. Now, as of this moment, 90% of the NBA is already vaccinated. So I forget the number that says something like maybe 50 players or so are not vaccinated. But the ones I just mentioned are sort of like the face of it, whether it's uh, Andrew Wiggins or Kyrie Irving. Um, so here's, here's the breakdown. I alluded to this already just before, but the NBA itself looks like they have a policy of, get vaccinated or you have to get tested. That's the NBA policy. But the two states which are saying not enough, New York and California. New York is saying in order to play in the Brooklyn Nets arena or in the Knicks arena, Madison Square Garden, you have to be vaccinated, no exceptions, no religious exemption or anything of that nature. And for California, a bunch of teams in California, they say can't play here unless you have that either, uh, unless you have the vaccine as well. So they don't allow for a testing out, if you will. So that's where we are right now. It looks like the NBA is sort of accommodating the players. 90% are vaccinated. The 10% who aren't, they're like, okay, you could test. Um, but California and New York are saying that's not enough. So um, where do I stand on this? Well, I might surprise some. I don't know. Actually, I don't know if this surprises some of you. But I actually agree with the NBA. And I don't agree with New York. And I don't agree with California. So if you give people the out of a test, I don't see what the issue is. And I'll, I'll even go a step further. Um, I don't just, I'm not just okay with the religious exemption. I'm okay with an ideological exemption. In fact, I don't like the idea of giving, granting special status to religion. So if you say, I don't want to get the vaccine because of my religion, that's okay. But if you say, I don't want to get the vaccine because I'm just against vaccines for ideological reasons or because I've read some BS that's anti-vaccine, you should be allowed to not get the vaccine simply by saying it's not religious. I just don't want to get it. That should be allowed too. So I'm big on, and I told you guys this with Biden's vaccine mandate, that the reason I was such a staunch defender of his vaccine mandate is because it's not really a mandate. He's saying businesses with 100 employees or more either get vaccinated or get tested. He's given people the out of get tested. 
That's why I'm okay with it. If Biden just said, get vaccinated and that's it, no excuses, that's too aggressive and that's too authoritarian. Now, having said all that, should you get the vaccine? Of course you should. The data is overwhelming. Any of the anti, like the anti-vaxxers at this point, in order to make their arguments, they have to go into cuckooville because the data is so clear. I mean, look at, of the people who are in the hospital, it's like 98% of them are unvaccinated. The people who are in the hospital and dying of COVID, they're almost universally unvaccinated. So the vaccine is working. The vaccine is doing its job. Even if you're vaccinated and you get COVID, it's going to be a much more mild case because you're vaccinated. So I don't want anybody to misconstrue my statement here as like being soft on anti-vaxxers or agreeing with Kyrie Irving on the insane substance of, you know, he thinks they're microchips in the vaccine. Whatever. No, that's crazy. And that's dumb. And that's wrong. And if you're not getting the vaccine for whatever reason, you're wrong. But you have a right to be wrong as long as you follow the other regulation, in my opinion. So I think New York should say, and listen, you want to put even stricter um, regulations for the, non, for the unvaxxed? Fine. So say it's not weekly tests, right? it's daily tests. You have to take daily tests in order to play in Madison Square Garden, uh, in order to play against the Knicks, in order to play against the Brooklyn Nets. You have to have a daily test, and you have to be masked on the sidelines. Go ahead. This, like, as long as you're giving people the out, then I think it's reasonable. If you're not giving people the out, that's too authoritarian to me. So listen, this is the flip side of, of what happened with Biden. I thought Biden was super reasonable in saying get vaccinated or get tested. I totally agree with that policy. Just to say get vaccinated, period, the end, that's what California is doing, that's what New York is doing, that's too much. Because not everybody's going to agree with you. Not everybody's going to be right about this stuff. Some people are going to have genuine religious beliefs against this kind of stuff. People have a right to be wrong. And you shouldn't take away their livelihood and say you can't do your job as a result of that. So... Um, I actually am with the 10% of NBA players who want to be worked with, and I'm with the NBA who says vaccine or test, or test. If you want to have stricter rules about what kind of test, you know, may, maybe some states say not the rapid, that's not good enough. You've got to do this other test, which takes a little long. Okay, fine, whatever, but accommodate them. Because if you're at 90% already, I mean, that's phenomenal, and they're at 90% vaccinated. That's already a home run. So if outside of that you say everybody else gets tested, I don't see the problem at all. Um, So I do think New York is being too harsh. I do think California is being too harsh. I think the NBA is handling it right. And I think the NBA should be in in talks with New York State and California and say, like, let's change that policy up because that really is too harsh and it makes no sense. And it is. I think it is fair to call it authoritarian. I don't think what Biden did is authoritarian at all. I think to say vaccine or test, I think that's just basic intelligent regulation. That's what I think that is. I think vaccine, no questions asked, period, that is too much. Because then you do get into the principle of like, well, the government can tell you to do that. They can tell you to do anything. They can tell you to do anything. The same people who lied us into the Iraq war, the same people who did the Tuskegee experiments, the same people who did the Bay of Pigs, they get no questions asked, get to put in your body, whatever they want to put in your body, and you don't even have a regulatory out? No. Now, again, I want to be clear, this is an instance where the government is right on the vaccine. They're correct. Like, the vaccine works and it's good. Uh, but in principle, I have a problem with just force it, and that's the end of the conversation. So I do think California, I do think New York go too far. I think the correct approach is the NBA approach. Vaccinate or test. Um, and I don't think this is that difficult a question, guys. I really don't. I think that I obviously think the position I'm taking is the only reasonable position because you're either too authoritarian if you tell them to take it. Um, and if you say, hey, no 
other regulations at all, no masking, no testing for the unvaxxed, well, that puts everybody at risk then. So total laissez-faire, live and let live, no regulation approach is dumb, and a hardcore authoritarian, everybody vaccinate, no questions asked approach is dumb. Vaccinate or test is the best way to go, and so I hope that the NBA wins out in this fight and New York and California lose. Okay. All righty. Let's continue, y'all. Um, Rachel Maddow, let's talk about her. Well, surprise, surprise, Rachel Maddow appears to be out at MSNBC in the near future. Um, this is interesting. This has been an underreported story. I haven't seen many headlines about this at all. Um, in fact, if anything, it's being misreported. But take a look. This is in the New York Post. They say, MSNBC staffers are panicking over the direction of the left-leaning news network under newly minted President Rashida Jones, fe- fearing that she's getting, or excuse me, that she's gearing up for a costly and potentially disastrous battle with CNN, the Post has learned. Staffers say recent meetings with Jones and her boss, NBC Universal News Chief uh, Cesar Condi, have focused on hard news with the execs boasting of ratings wins over CNN on breaking stories, such as this summer's congressional hearings on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. That makes some employees nervous that MSNBC isn't adequately focused on shoring up its primetime lineup of opinion-focused shows that draw on the most loyal viewers. The issue burst into the open last month when news leaked that Rachel Maddow, the network star, had been negotiating a new contract and had threatened to leave. Rashida's love is in hard news, an insider said, pointing to the exec's past role guiding MSNBC's daytime news coverage and NBC news coverage. She doesn't really get what primetime does. Maddow ended up inking a a broader deal that was worth a whopping $30 million a year through 2024, according to the Daily Beast, which cited anonymous sources. It will let her develop projects across the network and also allow her to step aside from hosting her 9 p.m. primetime show within the next year. Whoa, so Maddow's gone within the next year. Whoa, talk about burying the lead in a story. So listen, um, I despise Rachel Maddow. Rachel Maddow went, you know, from in the Bush years talking about how terrible war is. In the Obama years, she even held him accountable over Afghanistan and was seemingly a voice of reason to slowly but surely becoming a rah-rah Democrat, partisan hack, um, didn't support Bernie over Hillary by any stretch of the imagination, um, and then became a full-on Russiagate conspiracy theorist lunatic in the Trump era and got her best ratings while pushing complete and utter nonsense. Um, So I'm not a fan of Rachel Maddow. She was by far and away the most highly rated show on MSNBC. And what they're saying is not only is she gone within the year, which is like shocking, but also – the new head of MSNBC wants to change the direction of the network to be more like CNN. And in their mind, they say that's more hard news. Hilarious, by the way, to call that hard news. Now, uh, another interesting point, they say, oh, they were bragging about the ratings during the summer's congressional hearings on the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, but the reason why more people went to MSNBC for that than CNN is because MSNBC was supposed to give the more opinionated take on that the more pro-democratic version of that, an anti-Trumpist version of that. 
That's why more people went there. So they're misdiagnosing why people went there for, for the hearing. They're saying, oh, we're beating CNN on a breaking news topic, on a hard news issue. No, you were, bait, you were beating them on your bread and butter of we are more the rah-rah Democrat network. We're more of the partisan network. It's amazing to me that they misdiagnosed that, but they misdiagnosed that. So here's, the, here's my main takeaway. Um, this is going to be an even bigger disaster than it's already been. So for MSNBC to say we're going to be more hard news, like CNN, what they're really saying is we're now going to move to being more aggressively neutral. Because that's what CNN is. CNN is pro-establishment across the board, and they have a neutrality bias. So they try their best to say, uh, Democrats say this is their position, and Republicans say this is their position. And I'm just going to tell you what both their positions are, and pretend like I'm above the fray, and I have no real opinions, and I have no real ideology. Well, as I told you guys a million times, that is not possible. Everybody has an ideology. Everybody has a filter through which they view the world. And either you're going to have people who are open and honest and upfront with their perspective with you, or people who are going to try to hide it and effectively lie by omission. And so CNN is a mess. CNN is a joke. And their ratings are not great. Leave it to MSNBC to say, we're going to take on a fight with the number two network in the country to try to beat them, and so we can become number two in the country. Why wouldn't you try to become number one in the country? How about that? Why wouldn't you try to have a new model, a new mold, a new approach to get to number one in the country? Well, they wouldn't do that because what does it take to get to number one in the country? If you were actually a left network that represented left beliefs, like actual ideological commitment to left policies, then you have a chance. Then you have a shot. And, you know, that's, that's left new media is sort of that ecosystem. And there is, a, there is an audience there. There is a market there that's been waiting forever for that. And uh, it's never going to get served. And the reason is very simple. Because MSNBC, it's, these are corporations. The cable news networks are corporations. And so if you have true lefties on air, by their very nature, they will threaten the profits of that system. By their very nature, they're against the corporate rule and the manufacturing of consent. And so they don't want to undermine their profit margin. They don't want to undermine their total pro-establishment grasp. So you never have lefties who are really advocating for left ideas. You never have very aggressively pro-Medicare for all or free college or living wage or getting money out of politics or end the wars types on TV. And it's a goddamn shame because this is how you get the manufacturing of consent because now the spectrum of, the, of debate, the spectrum of thoughts that are thinkable in mainstream media are you can either be right-wing enough to defend the Republicans and love the Republicans and love Trump or you can be left-wing enough to defend the corporate Democrats like Kamala Harris and that's as far left as you're allowed to go. And that's where we are. So... Um, the deranged Russiagate conspiracy theorist is stepping down within the year. That's amazing. And there will only be a further implosion because if MSNBC tries to be more like CNN, which is aggressively neutral and vapid, well, that might even be worse than just being rah-rah Democratic Party. And I hate rah-rah Democratic Party. I hate rah-rah Republican Party. 
I hate the aggressive fake neutrality, uh, but probably they found their niche in rah-rah Democratic Party. And if you get rid of that and become more aggressively neutral, more pro-establishment, more like CNN, number one, I think you're going to lose that fight in the long run to CNN because they are the place to go for the neutral news. Um, But number two, you're taking your most ardent viewers and telling them, don't watch us anymore. And that's what's going to happen. I think the best approach would be a, a gradual shift to a true lefty network. But like I said, that by its very nature, that threatens power and that threatens capital. And so they'd never allow that, ever. In terms of going that direction the right way and getting a bigger audience, I think you could become number one that way. I think you could beat Fox News that way. But I won't hold my breath because they were literally saying we would just want to be more like CNN. We want to fight for that number two slot, which is probably the saddest thing I've ever heard. Literally not even playing to win. Literally. It's we're playing to be number two. Imagine the massive cuck mindset that you have to have to, to go in that direction, to be that way, to already, hey, I'm resigned. I'm never going to get number one. Resign to that fact. So pathetic. Well, be aggressively vapid and neutral, and uh, you won't get far, so I'll be watching. Okay. All right, here we go. Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin is, um, I mean, it's already sort of understood, sort of across the political spectrum, that Rubin is not that bright. And uh, he somehow keeps getting worse and worse. It's astonishing. Well, here he is. I don't know if this is Newsmax or One American News Network or whatever, but he went on one of these far-right networks. And um, he talked about how he believes in Trump and Trumpism. And this is like the worst summation of all time trying to describe what Trumpism is. Yeah, well, by the way, that's why what Newsom said there was so scary. He's like, you know, we got rid of Trump, but we didn't get, a Trump, get rid of Trumpism. I mean, Trumpism is a basically a set of ideas sort of based around America first, that we should care about America first. I, I fully believe in that. It doesn't mean I believe in every single thing that Trump did or that I think he's the perfect man. But when Newsom says we have to get rid of Trumpism, you know, when you, when you try to get rid of ideas, you end up getting rid of a lot of people. And I know an awful lot of people, because I met them over the last couple of weeks, who were good, decent Americans who were showing up to Larry Elder rallies, right. where thousands of people were. And there were no thousands of people at Gavin Newsom rallies, a lot of media people there. Yeah. Um, and it's like, are you going to get rid of all of those people? What exactly do you mean by that? Oh, Dave. Oh, Dave. There was a time when Dave Rubin was a Sam Harris stan, because Sam Harris would always talk about the problem with Islam and, you know, by extension, Uh, Muslims and their beliefs and how illiberal it is and how that's a big problem. And their main argument in that debate was there's a difference between ideas and people. So when we say we're trying to get rid of Islam, we're saying we're trying to get rid of it as a set of ideas. And that is not us saying we want to get rid of people. And he just made the polar opposite argument there. That when Newsom says we've got to get rid of Trumpism, Rubin says, you're saying you want to get rid of the people? To get rid of ideas, you've got to get rid of the people. So, so which is it? I, I mean, is that an admission from Dave Rubin? Like, yeah, when I was talking about getting rid of Islam as a concept, I actually meant, let's get rid of Muslims. Is that an admission? 
or is he just a total hypocrite and contradicting himself and he doesn't know how to think or talk? I'll leave it up to you to determine it, but that is a complete contradiction. His whole political awakening and shift to the right started with, uh, let me first be an enlightened centrist and be a Sam Harris type and be a Sam Harris fan. And that ma- the main argument was, we're against Islam, we're not against Muslims. We're against the ideas, we're not against the people. And here he's saying, when Gavin Newsom says, we got rid of Trump, but we need to get rid of Trumpism. He says, to get rid of the ideas, you've got to get rid of the people. So how could you? Okay. I mean, just, like, and also, are you sort of insinuating and implying that, like, what, Gavin Newsom wants to shove right-wingers into camps? Is that the idea? Or, or kick them out of California? I don't know what he's insinuating, but either way, it's dumb. There is no intelligent point that was made there at all. Um, but the best part, of course, is he says Trumpism is a set of ideas and it's basically about America first. Imagine, imagine, after Donald Trump's first term in office, he's had power for four years. You follow the news for a living. Day in and day out, you had to see the headlines, you had to read the articles, you had to see what was happening. And your summation of Trumpism after four years was, it's basically about America first. You're either the most ignorant person that there is, or you're just lying. Because no credible person, honestly evaluating what happened, can say Trumpism is America first. How much money did Donald Trump approve to go to Saudi Arabia for a weapons deal as they're committing a genocide in Yemen? How many billions and billions of dollars? How much money did Trump hand over to Israel? How much money in weaponry did he give to Israel? How is that America first? We give Israel billions of dollars when we don't even have health care for all of our people? By the way, what would America first really look like? Bernie Sanders would have been the actual America first candidate. Why? He wanted to get Americans health care. He wanted to get Americans free college. He wanted to get Americans kindergarten. He wanted to raise wages for American workers. He wanted to stop the outsourcing. That's a real America first agenda. And that's something I'm on board with. Dave Rubin says Donald Trump was doing America first. He continued our wars. Dave, is that America first to continue the neocon imperialist wars? Is that what that is? He increased our drone strikes 432%. Dave, is that America first? Is it America first? to do George W. Bush's tax plan and put it on steroids and have 83% of the benefits go to the top 1%. That seems like it's billionaire first. It seems like when he cut corporate, uh, corporate taxes, that was corporations first. That ain't America first. It looked, seemed like when there was net outsourcing of jobs under Trump's administration, just like there was under Obama's administration, that's not America first. That's America last. That's like Bangladesh first. And Mexico first. Even the carrier factory that he made a big show. Oh, yeah, we're going to save these jobs. A year later, they outsourced the jobs. And Trump hosed the taxpayers and gave subsidies to carrier, and then they outsourced the jobs anyway. So you got screwed in two ways. Taxpayers got hosed, and the jobs got outsourced. Is that America first, Dave? What aspect of Donald Trump was seriously America first? If he continued the wars, if he screwed the middle class and cut taxes for the wealthy, if he was just as corrupt, if not more corrupt than the previous administration, he very famously gutted the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which returned billions of dollars to defrauded Americans when big financial institutions screwed them over. What part of this is America first? What part of it? I'll wait. Remember when he took a million dollars from predatory payday lenders for uh, his inaugura- inauguration 
and then he turned around and dropped the lawsuit into them and deregulated them. Remember that? What part of that's America first? There's not a single part of Trumpism that is conceivably America first. You know what Trumpism is? George W. Bushism. You know what Trumpism is? Standard movement conservatism. That's what it is. But he says, that's, that's basically America first. I love, I love the hedge. I'm not saying I agree with everything he did. Okay, so name anything that he did that is actually America first. I'll wait. I'll wait. You're not going to come up with it, buddy. In fact, it was Biden who signed executive orders to buy American. Now, there were loopholes. It was bullshit. It was nonsense. But he did more on that front than Trump did. Trump just did a symbolic Buy America week. It was all symbolism. So what did he do? What was America first? He's so bad at this. He's just so bad. At, it's just offensive how bad he is at this job. At least when I watch a Ben Shapiro video, I'll have to, I'll have to look up like one or two things. Like I, that's, I think that's bullshit, but I don't know exactly how that's bullshit. Let me look it up. When Dave Rubin talks, softball down the center of the plate, home run every time, because he, he just, he's so lazy. He's such a bad propagandist. Up your game, son. Up your game, son. This isn't even difficult. All right, final story of the day. Let's do it. Let's do a little throwback clip here. This really caught my eye and blew my mind. You're going to see a young Noam Chomsky. My guess is probably in like the 1990s, young relatively speaking. She, of course, still has like gray hair back then, but he is going to um, give what I think are the most powerful arguments I've heard against capitalism um, and effectively classical liberalism. Take a look. Thank you. 
uh, you go back to the 19th century when there was a live, popular, libertarian, working class movement, and you will read in the Knights of Labor publications that wage slavery is not a lot different from slavery. In fact, if you bother to go back to the origins of democratic thought, you know, you really read the classics, the classics of when people claim to be you know, classical liberals and so on. But you go back and read the stuff, you know, like, say, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who was the inspiration of John Stuart Mill. Uh, he says the leading principle of this, you know, the great classical liberal, you know, the origin of the whole business. Uh, the uh, leading principle of his thought is that human beings are born to, he said, to inquire and create, and to create under their own initiative. Any, if, if any work that a person does under outside pressure is inhuman, if a person creates something beautiful under outside orders, we may admire what he does, but we will despise what he is. Well, that's classical liberal thought. They don't tell you that in the Chicago school. But that's classical any more than they tell you what Adam Smith really said, which is very different from what's claimed. Uh, but that's classical liberal thought, and it's because it was driven by you know, concepts of human rights and human dignities, which are seriously infringed by the structure of business operations, even if the guys who run it are nice guys. You can't be a nice guy in certain positions because the institution is not nice. Now, I'm not, you know, like I'm not saying let's go out and blow up Lotus, you know, sure. Not not at all. I mean, yes, among the best ones around. But that doesn't lead us to over, I, sh I think it should not lead us to overlook what's fundamentally wrong with that authoritarian structure. Damn, that was fascinating. So I don't know how many of you heard the question, but the guy asked something to the effect of, well, listen, you know, we're very hard on the system, um, but there's no denying that there are some bosses who are good people, they treat their workers well, um, and, you know, they're effectively, what's, what's the problem with that? What's the issue? If un under the system you have some bosses who treat their workers well and they have good benefits and health care and good pay and all that stuff, like, where's there a problem? And then Chomsky makes the comparison. I mean, listen, right, fair, but you could say the same thing under uh, – feudalism or under slavery. And he didn't get into the specifics here, but I've seen other lectures where he points out that when, when the debate was going on about abolishing slavery, a lot of the uh, pro-slavery elements made astounding arguments saying stuff like, listen, uh, the slaves are better off under this system because we actually care more about them than somebody would care about them in a post-slavery environment. I mean, I need them. They're vital. So what do, I, what do I do? I mean, I treat them well. I feed them well. I give them a lot of relaxation time. I make sure they're cared for. Um, and if, if, we get, if we get rid of slavery, well, then what happens? Then they become wage slaves. And so instead, I own them. Are you going to treat a car better that you own, or are you going to treat a car better that you rent? So under, in a capitalist environment, these workers are going to be rented, not owned. And so they're going to get a worse deal. They're not going to be treated as well. They're not going to be fed as well. Uh, you know, I look out for them because they're my property. These were the arguments that were made by slave owners at the time. And the point was like, listen, in reality, I treat them better than they would uh, be treated under a system where slavery was abolished, and then they had to go work anyway and rent their labor on the marketplace. 
And so Chomsky makes this point. And he says, now, even if that's true, because maybe in some instances it is true, maybe there were some plantations where that was the case, and then you abolished it, and then they worked in worse conditions. Does that mean that the institution of slavery was defensible? And he says, of course not. Of course not. Because it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of principle that slavery is wrong. And so he just takes it one step further and says, under the capitalist system, how does it work? Again, in other lectures, and I've explained this to you all before, um, he talks about how, think of a big business and how it works. What's the structure of that business? Usually, you have an owner of the business. And then you have a boss underneath the owner who the boss takes their orders from the owner. And then, you know, you're a worker, you take, or maybe there's a manager underneath the boss, and then the manager takes the order from the boss, the boss takes the order from the owner, and then, you know, the manager tells you what to do and you're a worker. And so there's a very rigid hierarchy. Now, what's the closest thing? If you take us out of the realm of economics and just talk about it in the realm of politics, what is that structure? That's an authoritarian structure. That's a tyrannical structure. That's a dictatorship is what it is. Rigid hierarchy, conformity, rules, marching orders. That's what that is. And so Chomsky says um, it's a contradiction at the heart of our society. That on the one hand, we talk about political democracy and human rights and freedom and justice, and it's so important that you get to make the decisions for yourself. But on the other hand, where we spend most of our waking time at our job in the economy is rigidly tyrannical and dictatorial and structured. I mean, look, it, it's hard to argue against these things, right? And that's why, so when he talks about classical liberalism there, he's talking about what is what, is what we call modern-day libertarianism, like right-wing libertarianism, uh, a commitment to a laissez-faire free market system. And what he's saying is, under a lot of the original people who are branded with, they're like the libertarians, they're the classical liberals, he's saying that people completely even misunderstood what their position was, that... Uh, you know, they actually wanted people to be their own bosses, make their own decisions, and working for somebody else was sort of like um, inherently dehumanizing. Now, do I completely agree with Chomsky? No, not necessarily. I think he overstates it a little bit, but the concept that he's talking about there is worth debating and discussing and diving into, and it really helps you change your perception of the way the world works and the way the economy works. And that's why now we're having, whether it's Professor Richard, Richard Wolf or others, you know, should we have a, a much bigger aspect of workplace democracy? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, certainly for businesses over a certain size, there should be more of an element of egalitarianism and democracy in the workplace. Um, I think for small businesses, it's, it's a little bit of a different scenario. Um, but the concepts he's talking about here are mind-blowing and fascinating. And he's saying, even if I grant all the critics every point they make, sure, under the system, you know, some people are treated well, and, you know, there's all these uh, benefits and positives, and sure, capitalism uh, was better than feudalism, and feudalism was better than uh, chattel slavery, and chattel slavery perhaps was better than whatever came before that. I don't know, but he's saying, even if I grant you all that, it's still wrong in principle. It's still wrong in principle. And so he always says, think of freedom as a, as a tendency. So think of our movement towards 
more freedom, more liberty, more justice as, as a tendency. And so whatever comes next will be an outgrowth of whatever we're going through now and will sort of move us in the right direction, sort of a true progressive in the original sense of the term that he believes we will kind of naturally progress. And um, these arguments that he's making against capitalism and classical liberalism, as he calls it, those are some strong arguments, dog. Those are some strong arguments. Definitely something worth thinking about. It's sort of like the opposite of the end of history analysis, you know, that we've already sort of hit our end point. And um, so look at everything through that lens and through that perspective. He's saying, what if it's sort of more like the beginning of history? And we got a hell of a lot more evolving to do, and eventually people will throw these chains of capitalism off, um, and we'll move on to something better, more beautiful. Um, I think I'm a touch more conservative than he is in many respects, but either way, powerful arguments to contemplate. All right, guys, we are done, baby. I love you all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.